Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6. And uh, I lied to you last week. I I said we would be in uh, John... Gospel of John this morning as we're doing our, our chronological look at the, at the life of Christ, harmonizing the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's a daunting task, but we're having fun doing it. Uh, we will be, God willing, in the Gospel of John next week, but I wanted us to camp out in, uh, in Mark uh, one more time, uh, Mark chapter 6. And now last week, uh, we read what probably has been the most spectacular miracle of Jesus so far, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And first-time readers of the life of Christ may be thinking, well, that was pretty phenomenal, taking a bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and multiplying it so that 15, 20,000 people were fed. I mean, the text says 5,000 men were fed, besides women and children. So we're thinking 15, 20,000 possibly were fed. That's pretty amazing. What's he going to do to top that? My response is, keep reading. You ain't seen nothing yet. So uh, let's jump right in. And if you would stand with me now in honor of the reading of God's Word. I know I told you to sit down, but go ahead and get right back up. We like to stand up in honor of the reading of the Word, recognizing that this is the the Word of of the Lord. And we're in Mark chapter 6, and we are starting at verse 45. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45, and we'll read on down through verse 52. God's Word says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out, of the, uh, out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, "'Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid.'" And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize this is your holy and inspired word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so I pray now that we would receive this food from you uh, that we would receive it as nourishment, that we would receive it as, as encouragement, uh, that you would help us to believe it, enjoy it, love it, live by it. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you study some of the ancient mythologies of various civilizations, the ocean often plays an important role in those stories. And so you've got mythic battles uh, between gods and evil sea monsters. Those are common elements in creation myths. You, you have these gods of creation making things, and then you have these, these forces of anti-creation coming against them. And uh, that's, that's very common. Typically, in these stories, the, the ocean, the sea, is viewed negatively. 
Interestingly enough, uh, in the Bible, the sea is often seen in connection with chaos and judgment and evil. You have the floodwaters covering the entire earth and Genesis. You have in Exodus the Red Sea being an instrument of judgment against the Egyptians. Or in the books of Daniel and Revelation, you have these, these evil, terrifying beasts which are symbols of godless world empires. And where are they coming from? They are rising from the sea in these prophetic visions. Throughout history, man has always had both a fascination with and a fear of the sea because it's not tameable. It's not controllable. And even the most skilled swimmer or sailor can find himself at its mercy as the disciples do in this situation. This would have been a very terrifying situation for them. And yet the desperate and terrifying situation they find themselves in becomes the the backdrop against which the glory of Jesus Christ shines all the more brightly. And it becomes the classroom in which the disciples and us learn important lessons from our Lord. And there are several observations I'd like to make about the the text this morning. Uh, Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. The disciples have done all they can do. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the night. Verse 48 says they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. They are struggling against the waves. And it says about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The disciples find themselves in a situation where their lives are in danger. They are completely and totally helpless. They've been out there struggling against the sea for what might have been hours. And it's it's not until the middle of the night, fourth night of the watch, the text says. That's between three and six in the morning that Jesus finally shows up. It's almost as if Jesus is deliberately delaying his arrival and letting things get to the point where it's as bad as it can possibly get before he shows up and comes to their aid. In fact, I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. This is a deliberate delay. Look with me at verse 45. text says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. What crowd? Well, the fifteen to 20,000 people whom he had just fed there. So he's staying on the shore, but he is sending the disciples away. It says he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And in the Greek language, that word made is compelled or forced them to go. There was some resistance on behalf of the disciples, but Jesus was intent on them going and on them going without him. Seems like Jesus is setting them up to be in a dangerous and difficult situation. He is sending them into the storm without him. Now you might say, well, surely Jesus wouldn't do something like that. Well, he just did something similar in the prior story. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus knew there was no food for the people. He could have sent the crowds away earlier to get food. He could have miraculously made food for them earlier. He could have had the food just sitting out there waiting in advance for everyone like a picnic so no one has to worry about this. But he doesn't do that. He delays. He waits. What's going on here? Why does Jesus sometimes operate in this way? Why did he wait 
until the 5,000 got hungry? Why did he wait until the disciples were at their most desperate hour until he shows up on the sea? And for that matter, we know from other scriptures that Jesus can calm fierce storms. Why not calm it immediately before things get as bad as they do? Why, with the, with the first rumblings of thunder, did Jesus not prevent the storm in the first place? He lets them struggle in this storm for a very long time without relief. What are we to make of this? If you're here this morning as a believer, you need to recognize that whenever Jesus withholds immediate relief and does not give you what you think you need right now, Jesus is not being cruel and sadistic. Instead, Jesus is loving you. If Jesus delays, his delaying is purposeful. He knows exactly what he's doing. In letting the 5,000 go hungry before feeding them, Jesus is doing exactly what God did in the Old Testament with Israel. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt... He takes them out of Egypt and is guiding them through the wilderness to the promised land. And food becomes a big problem real quick. And the people begin to despair for lack of food. They accuse God of being cruel, of leading them out into the desert to kill them. And God steps in in a huge way and creates miraculous bread to feed the people every day. And Moses in Deuteronomy 8 explains the purpose of it all. Moses' explanation of of what happened in the wilderness is is here. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the same way, when Jesus lets the 5,000 hunger for a little while, he's not being mean. He's not being unloving. And after they hunger for a little while, he feeds them with miraculous bread that he creates out of thin air to show them that they are not to live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And the scriptures tell us that that word is Jesus. He is showing them who is most important and who they really need to depend on. In the same way... Jesus sending his disciples into the storm and letting them struggle through the night fighting for their lives is not unloving. He wants to show them something. He wants to show them something about his glory, about his identity, and and something about what they need more than anything else. Because if they don't know what they really need, they'll always bank their hopes on lesser things like favorable weather and calm seas, and protection from drowning. Sometimes Jesus withholds what we think we need to show us what we really need. Because if we don't know what we really need, we'll always chase after the wrong things for life and for satisfaction. We'll always bank our hopes on lesser things, both bad and good. Lesser things like food, like physical comfort, like pornography, like iPads, like healthy marriages, like possessions, like sinful pleasures, like money, like jobs, like houses, like entertainment, like hobbies, like a million other things that will never ever satisfy the deepest places in our souls. Sooner or later, those lesser things will disappoint us. 
They'll let us down. They will fail us. And if we spend our lives chasing those lesser things, when they come crashing down around us, we will come to this horrible realization that we have wasted our lives because we have spent 60 years banking our hopes for life and happiness and satisfaction in the wrong things. To bank our hopes on anything apart from Jesus Christ is suicidal. Jesus is absolutely intent on helping the disciples to learn, to know, to really understand who and what they need more than anything else. He wants them to understand what they think they need is ultimately not what they really need. He wants them to recognize that everything that they need is bound up in the person of Christ. And often for us to really get that, that requires a stripping away of everything that we think we need. It requires us exhausting our own human strength. It requires us coming to the end of our own human resources until in the end all we have is Christ. That's the ultimate meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. And this struggle on the sea is an extension of that lesson. And I think that's going to get uh, even more clear as we move forward. So Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. Next thing we see is that Jesus never abandons his disciples in the storm. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? I bet you that there are many people in this room who have gone through that experience. Some of you in this room, even now, may be going through a personal storm so intense that you feel abandoned, you feel rejected, you feel forsaken. Typically, it is those times of intense trial and pain, those those times when God withholds from us the relief we so desperately want, it's then that we feel the most alone and the most abandoned by God. If at any time up to this point in their ministry, the disciples felt alone, it's now. This may be the toughest trial they've ever experienced up to this point, alone, on the lake, the blackness of the sea beneath them, the thunder and the lightning above them, buffeted by the waves, fighting the storm for what seems like an eternity, losing strength minute by minute. You know, the last time they faced a deadly storm was in Mark chapter 4. But in that storm, at least they had Jesus in the boat with them. And all they had to do was wake him up and he took care of it. This is different though. Jesus is up on some mountain somewhere praying, and we're in the middle of this mess, and you sent us here. Where are you, Jesus? Well, why did you let us go? Have you forgotten us? Jesus didn't forget them. But sometimes, in our darkest and most intense storms, we forget something. If you're a child of God, if you belong to Him, you are never, ever alone. You are not alone, as alone as you think you are in that moment of pain. God doesn't abandon his people, and he always knows exactly where you are and what you're going through. There is not one millisecond where you are not under his watchful eye and care. In fact, you couldn't even shake God if you wanted to. As the psalmist writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, you're there. God is always present with his people. Jesus never abandons his brothers and sisters. In fact, he says in Matthew 28 to us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus never 
abandons his people. God always has his eye on his children. And we see here that Jesus all along has his eye on these desperate disciples. He's not ignorant of what's going on. Look at verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. These disciples might have felt as alone and separated from Jesus as they had ever been. But their feelings and and the intensity of the struggle did not change the reality that in truth they were not alone and they were not forgotten. Text tells us that Jesus saw them from where he was on the land. Scripture says he saw them making headway painfully. These are experienced fishermen and and they're barely making any kind of progress here. But Jesus sees them. He, he knew exactly what was going on the whole time. His eye was on them. And because his eye was on them and he saw their struggles, he responded. And it is fascinating how he responds, which leads me to my next observation that Jesus reveals his deity in the storm. Jesus reveals his deity in the storm. Here are the disciples fighting and struggling against this storm. And now we see Jesus doing something both remarkable and terrifying, frankly, at the same time. In the midst of a ferocious storm, Jesus comes walking towards the disciples on top of the water. Verse 48 says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Are you kidding me? It is so crucial as you're studying the life of Jesus to understand the Old Testament Jesus Christ comes into history wrapped in the robes of Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament religion, Old Testament imagery. And according to the Old Testament, no one, I mean no one, walks upon the sea except for one person, and that's Yahweh. That's God. Look at the scripture here in the, in the book of Job. He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Yahweh is the only one who does this. Job says, he alone tramples the waves of the sea. And yet what do we see here in Mark 6? We see Jesus without effort, as if he were walking on dry ground, trampling the waves. The psalmist says this in Psalm 77, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out of the water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lifted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. That psalm speaks of God's sovereignty over the sea as he parts the waters in Israel's exodus from Egypt, but it sure sounds like Mark chapter 6 too, doesn't it? There is a great storm, 
and thunder and lightning. And in the, in the midst of this fearsome moment, as the sea is churning, the water becomes subdued and even flees as the Lord approaches in power. There is only one who has mastery over the turbulent, chaotic, and foreboding waters of the earth. It's Yahweh himself. This theme, this motif of God being Lord of the sea runs throughout Scripture. And this is incredibly significant in light of the wonder, the fear, and the dread that the ancient world had of the sea. In fact, in the very first words of the Bible, Scripture automatically separates itself from the ancient mythologies of the earliest civilizations. Whereas in the old myths, uh, the creation of the world is often accompanied by a struggle of the gods against the sea and the terrible, mythical, devastating sea monsters that dwelled in the deep, Genesis begins on a much different note. The Bible says, God spoke and the seas appeared. There is no conflict. There is no struggle. The sea is not a god nor the home of evil gods that can resist the Lord. Instead, the sea is controlled by and actually does the bidding of Yahweh. Look at this one in Psalm 33, verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Or, going back to Job 9, just a a few verses after the one that we just read about God alone trampling the waves of the sea, Job continues his declaration of God's complete sovereignty over the chaotic waters in verse 13. God will not turn back his anger. Beneath, Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Rahab. In the ancient Israelite world, or the ancient world, was a, a name for one of the most, uh, one of these terrifying sea gods in non-Israelite mythology. A giant sea monster from the dawn of creation. In Job, that phrase, helpers of Rahab, represents evil and chaotic forces. And Job says that the helpers of Rahab bowed beneath God. The sea, along with All of the darkness it represents is helpless under the total, raw, sovereign might of Almighty God. And now we see the same raw power and control being exercised in the person of Jesus. Jesus is walking on the water. He has no fear of the ocean. He has no concerns. He has no struggles. The sea does what he wants it to do. Beneath him the sea bows and does his bidding. He's trampling on the waves. He's doing something that only God can do. And this should not shock us. Because what does Jesus say in John chapter 5? Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. My Father works, I work. My Father creates bread out of thin air and gives manna from heaven to Israel. I create bread out of thin air and give food to thousands. My Father is sovereign over the sea. He tramples the waves. Guess what? I walk on water. I do what the Father does. I do what God does. Which is exactly why Jesus says later on, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And notice at the end of verse 48, Mark shares something very interesting. He says, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. That's odd. That's unusual. Didn't you find that strange too when you read that? If he's coming out to help them, why would he pass them? Well, I think again, considering all of this with the backdrop of the Old Testament helps, that kind of language of passing by 
is supercharged with Old Testament themes and meaning and was associated with God's self-disclosure, his self-revelation, his glory, where man gets a brief view of the transcendent God. So, for example, in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, we see that the Lord passed by Moses. And in that passing, Moses catches a glimpse of the glory of God, and that glory is associated with God's very name and his compassion and his faithfulness and mercy. Or, how about the incident in 1 Kings with the prophet Elijah on Mount Horeb? where we are told that the Lord passed by, revealing himself to Elijah. And now, here is Jesus treading upon the waves as if on solid ground, meaning to pass by the disciples. Just like he passed by Moses on Sinai. Just like he passed by Elijah on Horeb. The same God now passes by the twelve disciples. They catch a glimpse of his glory. He lets them see who he really is. And just like he did with Moses, as he passes by these disciples, he reveals his name. Look again at verse 48. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. That phrase, it is I, in the Greek language is ego eimi. Which literally means, I am. So if you want to translate that verse literally, Jesus is saying, take heart, I am. Now this has strong Old Testament echoes. For I am is the very name of the Lord that God revealed to Moses in the book of Exodus. Now I grant you that that Greek phrase, ego eimi, can be used as just simple self-identification in the sense of someone just saying, it's me. That's certainly the case. But in the context of everything that's going on, In the context of the storm, in the context of Jesus trampling the waves, in the context of Jesus meaning to pass by the disciples, showing them his glory, against the backdrop of what we see in the Old Testament, it's hard for me to think that Jesus' use of ego eimi is simply just him saying, hey guys, it's me. Instead, I think we are intended to hear at least an implicit echo, if not an explicit reference to the very name of God himself. Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In other words, have no fear, God is here. What's the point? The point is that Jesus doesn't respond to the disciples' distress by stopping the storm and calming the seas, does he? He he could have done that from the mountainside. He could have done that as he was on the shore watching them being tossed to and fro by the waves. He could have said, peace be still, and that would have been it. But he doesn't do that. He does something better. He goes out to be with them in the midst of the storm. And here we discover something incredible. We discover that the greatest thing that God can offer the disciples or me or you in our darkest moments is himself. Which leads to my next observation that Jesus' presence dispels fear in the storm. Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I. Take heart is translated in some Bibles as be of good cheer. Be of good cheer? It's easy for you to say, Jesus. We're about to die, you're walking on the water. 
We're about to be swallowed up by the waves. You're on top of them doing just fine. But that's the whole point. In this sign of Jesus walking on the water, Jesus is making a powerful statement. He's not just saying, hey, look at this neat trick. Again, in practically every ancient culture, the sea was viewed with fear. It represented uncontrollable, terrifying powers beyond our comprehension. You know, you can, you can walk on the land, and every once in a while, there might be a rare earthquake where the ground opens up and you sink. That might happen in a rare situation. I used to live in Alaska. I lived in Alaska for 14 years, and day two in Alaska, there was an earthquake. It was like Alaska was saying, welcome, and it was a, it was a scary one, but, but the earth didn't open up and swallow me. Obviously, I'm standing here right now, but... That might happen every once in a while, something like that. Very rare occasion. But listen, at the sea, this happens constantly. There is never stable footing in the ocean. It always threatens to engulf. And when a storm comes at sea, it's even worse. The waves are churning and constantly being stirred and will quickly overwhelm and destroy you. There is something unpredictable and chaotic about the sea. The very thing that the sea represented to these disciples becomes a fearsome reality. And yet here's Jesus. He's not struggling along. He's not thrashing about trying to stay afloat. He's not terrified. He is trampling the waves under his feet. The sea is raging and is seemingly out of control. And the disciples are in terror and are out of control. But there is one person who is in control and it's Jesus. This ocean and this storm that are capable of totally overwhelming and destroying the men in the boat can't touch the man on the water. These waters that seem to be untamable, are in reality under the authority and control of Jesus. And they remain under his feet. And this is a sign to the disciples. It's a sign to us. And Jesus is telling us through this sign that the most terrifying and uncontrollable and chaotic thing that you can think of, I am greater than that thing. It doesn't rule me. I rule it. And I'm right here with you through it all. And this should bring us good cheer. Now, we tend to be in dismay over the disciples' reaction in verse 51 because it seems like they don't get it. They don't learn the lesson. This was all a big lesson here for them. Verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Isn't that interesting? As soon as Jesus gets in, the wind ceases. It's like, okay, bell rings, class is over. What lesson have we learned, kids? But it says here, and they were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves. See, Mark is connecting this sign of Jesus on the water to the previous one, the previous lesson. It says, but their hearts were hardened. They did not understand the loaves. They didn't get it. The miracle of the feeding was all about the all-sufficiency of Christ alone. And Jesus' rescue of them on the sea made the same point. And we tend to think, how can these guys be so stupid? And yet, if we're honest... We struggle in the exact same way. Now, we believe our hearts have been softened to a degree, but we still battle unbelief. There there is still a hardness in our hearts that is exposed when we go through difficult trials and painful storms. 
And we have a hard time believing that what we need more than the storm to cease is Jesus' presence in our lives. We have a hard time believing that he's all-sufficient for every need. Some of you in this room are, are dealing with things right now that threaten to overwhelm you and engulf you. Things that seem so uncontrollable. Things that you feel like will swallow you whole, drag you to the bottom of the ocean, and destroy you. And as much as you struggle and fight and kick and scream, you cannot change it. And you are at the end of yourself. You're at the end of your strength. You're at the end of your resources. These things seek to capsize your boat and drag you to the bottom. But notice that Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, Take heart, be of good cheer, don't be afraid because I'm about to stop the storm. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because I've got these life jackets. You're going to be fine. The, the reason why the disciples shouldn't be afraid, according to Jesus, is that he is with them. The point is that what you need most and what I need most is not calmer weather or an end to the storm. Because another storm will be coming around the corner. Our life is storm after storm after storm after storm. That's what this life is like on this side of heaven, between Genesis 3 and heaven. Later on, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But what does Jesus say right after that? He says, but take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Friends, we tend to think, I tend to think, we all tend to think, That our most pressing need is the elimination of whatever is causing us to be afraid. That our most pressing need is for our problems to go away. Just remove this problem, God, and then everything will be okay. Just do this and fix that and then I'll be fine. Jesus is telling us that in reality our most pressing need is His presence. Our most pressing need is Him. Not Him waving a wand like a genie to do what we think He should do, but Him. Because if Jesus just fixes our immediate problem, if we receive His gifts, but we reject the giver, we've missed everything. That's going to be the point when He expounds a little later on uh, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to get to this in the next couple of weeks in John chapter 6. And that's the point Jesus is making in the stormy sea. As he offers us something better than calm weather, he offers us himself. Jesus says our peace is found and our hope is found not in the removal of tribulation in this life. Rather, our hope is to be found in the one who overcomes every tribulation and every trouble and every enemy. I know you have a hard time believing this, and so do I. And so I pray, God, increase our faith. It is in walking with Jesus that we overcome with Jesus. And the thing that threatens to overwhelm us doesn't. Instead of being overwhelmed, 
the exact opposite happens. God takes that thing that we are so fearful of and he turns it around for our good. It ends up not leading to our destruction, but amazingly, it ends up serving God's good and greater purposes for our lives. As it says in Romans eight twenty eight, that God works all things together for the good of his people. All things means all things. It just doesn't mean the nice things. It just doesn't mean the fun things or the pleasant things. It also means... Stormy weather, it means cancer, it means loss of job, it means pain. He works all things together for the good of his people. And then then a few verses later, right after he says God works all things together for the good of his people, he says in, in Romans 8, 31, you have Paul's response to that truth, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. If Jesus is all-powerful, if he has dominion over the sea and over every fearsome thing that is coming against you, then ultimately these things won't destroy you and they can't undermine God's purpose for you, which is to bless you, to do good to you, and to conform you to the image of his Son. Even the horrible things that threaten to break you will be used by God for your good, which means that in Christ you are invincible as far as God's purposes for your concern. In Christ you are conquering. You are trampling the waves with him. This is exactly why after Paul says God works all things together for the good of his people, and right after he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He then says, in all of these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8.37. And then, two verses down, in Romans 8.39, Paul triumphantly declares that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The stormy sea that seemed to separate Jesus from his disciples didn't. It could not stop him from being with them. But there was a bigger and even more fearsome gap than the sea that separated God from you. If you're a believer this morning, then you need to remember that you were in a situation worse than the disciples. They were about to be swallowed whole by the sea. You were about to be swallowed whole by death and hell. We rebelled against God. The wages of sin is death, which is eternal separation from God. But you know what? We, as God's elect, were never out of God's sight. We were never as alone as we thought we were. God sent his son Jesus to trample under his feet, not the waves, but a fiery serpent, the devil himself who held us captive through the power of sin and the power of death. And right at that moment, when things seem to be the darkest, at the end of our strength, at the end of our resources, Jesus offered up himself to God. He took our place as a substitute, was executed and suffered hell on our behalf and paid our debts for us. And though all of our sins were placed on him, he himself was truly innocent. And God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. If you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, trust him today. All who trust in him enjoy an erased debt. Doesn't that sound good? An erased debt? Paid in full, the ledger wiped clean. Some of you are thinking, I got a pretty long ledger. It's like encyclopedias worth of stuff. And the thought of it being erased and just 
blotted out and gone away, that's a beautiful thought to you. It's a beautiful thought to me as well. All who trust in him owe God nothing because Jesus paid it all. And though once we were strangers and outcasts, we who believe have been adopted by the Father, brought into the family of God, and receive eternal life now and the promise of a home in heaven later. And it will be a wonderful home. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, gives us a powerful and encouraging description of this place. Let's look at this next scripture here in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now check this out. And the sea was no more. Now some of you are thinking, well, I like water. (laughs) It's not encouraging. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think the point of this verse is hydrology. To tell you the percentage of H2O that will be around in the new heavens and the new earth. book of Revelation ends with a comment about the sea. This sea that has been associated with chaotic evil forces. This sea that has been associated with darkness and death. This sea that earlier in the book of Revelation is the home of the beast and the dragon, the devil himself, representing the human and spiritual forces of evil in the cosmos. There won't be any of that in the new heavens and in the new earth. Praise God for that. Those things have been overthrown. Evil has been vanquished. Those things that have caused us torment and fear and tribulation will be forever gone. And that's why, right after the mention of of there being no more sea, the Apostle John writes in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus, who conquered the waves on the Sea of Galilee, will fully and finally conquer all of the evil in the cosmos. And the day is coming where he will fully and finally give his people what he only gave the disciples a preview of in Mark chapter 6, the gift of himself and his presence forever. And so Revelation 21, 4 says, He will, he, who's he? Jesus. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I say to that with the Apostle John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping and giving strength to this weak, imperfect, flawed preacher. And I pray that anything that I have said or done that has not been helpful will be stricken from the the minds of my friends here. Uh, I don't want to get away in the way of what you are trying to say. Uh, But Father, I thank you for your, your help this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn this lesson that the disciples had a hard time learning, that we have a hard time learning. Sometimes our hearts are hard and we don't fully recognize and appreciate the fact that if we have Jesus Christ in our life, we have more than enough. Father, forgive us for our faithlessness and not really believing that. Lord, I pray for my friends here this morning who are really going through a difficult time, who are going figuratively through stormy weather, uh, pain, loss, tribulation. 
Oh, Father, I pray that you would comfort them with your presence, that you would comfort them in the way that you comfort the disciples by showing them Christ, who you are and your glory and and everything that you mean to your people. Help us with that, Father. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We don't deserve it, but you lavishly give it to us anyway. In Jesus' name, amen.